Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farajasat. Today we have Ken Clark, the big beast of British politics, in conversation with John Humphreys, the former Radio 4 Today programme presenter. Ken Clark is known as the big beast of British politics and the father of the house. He was Westminster's longest-serving male MP, having been MP for 49 years. He will be stepping down at the general election on December the 12th, as he was recently expelled from the Conservative Party in September for refusing to back a no-deal Brexit. Unlike some of his other rebel Tory MP colleagues who've had the whip restored, he has decided to end his illustrious career politically homeless. It's a fascinating discussion with one of the big characters in British politics. Ken Clark is known for his love of jazz, cigars, brown suede hush puppies and beer. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, do take a moment to rate and review Intelligence Squared on Apple Podcasts. And um, it's... uh, Journalists love being on stage with politicians. And there's a reason for that. Because if you look at those tables where they ask the population which professions, what sort of people they most trust and what sort of people they think are the biggest arseholes. I mean, that's a technical expression for what they do. Um, You will find that, obviously, and I hope there aren't too many here tonight, estate agents come at the bottom, (laughs) just just near the bottom are journalists, but below journalists are politicians. (laughs) And, And the thing about having Ken here, is he is the exception that proves the rule. Because I think it's fair to say, and I suspect the size of this audience tonight um, confirms what I'm about to say, I think it's fair to say that he is that exception, politician that people actually, after a very long time, both like and respect. So it's a double pleasure to be here tonight, and with Ken. And I have to say this, and you will probably have forgotten this, Ken, although I suspect you don't forget very much. It's that look he gives you, you know, that kind of... Uh, Some terrible revelation. It is going to be a terrible revelation. A very long time ago, well, about 20 years ago, roughly 20 years ago, I did an interview with Ken and forgot all about it. And then uh, a few days later, it was a Friday evening, on the Today programme, obviously, a few days later... Friday evening, I had a call from my boss to say, we are in trouble, by which he meant I was in trouble. Because, um, and don't give his name away, by the way, if you do remember, because a certain politician, a conservative politician, very senior one, member of the cabinet, 
was making a speech on that Friday evening, attacking me, viciously, viciously attacking me for having poisoned the well of democratic debate. And the example, one of the examples that he used was an interview that I had done with Ken, in which he alleged monstrously that I had interrupted Ken 34 times <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the space of the seven or eight minutes. It wasn't true. It was, I counted later, it was 37 times. But anyway, <laughs> put, put that to one side. It was a, and what he was doing in the speech was he was calling on his fellow cabinet ministers and other ministers in the government basically to boycott me, to stop. And had he succeeded, that would have been the end of my career. I would have been finished. But this guy... That was on a Friday evening. The weekend papers were full of it. Humphrey's going to be kicked off and all that sort of thing. And then this book then went on the world at one. I wonder if you remember. And you were asked about it and said, are you going to boycott Humphrey? And he said something like, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he said, what a load of bollocks. Is that... That's roughly, I, That's I, I, I remember who it was, it's in your book, I, mean, I, I, well, I, I don't remember it. Right. What I used to say was, people used to say that Humphreys interrupts, uh, didn't Humphreys interrupt you a lot, and you, you probably agree, my response usually was, well, I usually interrupt him as much as he interrupts me, <laughs> exactly. which is yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely true. And yeah, anyway, no, listen, I, we're going to tell you. It, anyway, it was, it was an objection that hadn't occurred <laughs> 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 the man who made these appalling allegations... Jonathan Aitken. Jonathan Aitken. <laughs> and what happened to Jonathan Aitken only a few months later? Moral yeah. never crossed John Humphreys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, walking past Wormwood Scrubs, it was very difficult not to go, hey! <laughs> so you remember that, Ken? I do remember it. I remember it. I always enjoy it. We're just sitting here being nice to each other at the moment. Just excuse us for a moment or two. A couple of old boys reminiscing. and we gather We enjoyed our exchanges. Yeah, I always enjoyed going to the break and being interviewed by you. And I, because I'm quite garrulous and I have a bad habit of interrupting a conversation, I never even noticed uh, <laughs> the, 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 the interruptions. I mean, nowadays, it'd be quite different. They're different. Oh, they're awful I, now. I, I'd, have no, to, I I'd have to learn my lines oh. before I went on. Oh, and yeah. I, somebody would school me. And, and you, you, we, we give you great demands. We won't <laughs> go on to this subject or that subject. But here, I, you may gather, we just, we're both rather talkative, so the two of us used to get on, and we were both interested in politics and used to argue about politics as you take a strong line the job was to take a line which disagreed with me Mm -hmm. that's the job of the interviewer and I rather enjoyed it and and isn't it the case that if one never interrupted a politician we would just have a series of party political broadcasts well actually the politician would miss out as well I think because it becomes extremely boring Mm -hmm. and just occasionally because uh, I'm sure very often you've got the better of me, but just I occasionally, if you respond properly, I mean, that is what enhances your reputation. That's what, you know, gets people to say, we should go on again and all that. Uh, and it's... That you, you, the main thing is you keep the audience, if the audience are seriously, intelligently interested, a lot. Whereas just sitting there with asking tame questions which are not being answered because you've got to give some slogan in at least twice in the interview because some irk from number 10 has told you that's what you're meant to do. <laughs> but but uh, before we go any further down this road, I'd immediately tell myself that I'm becoming an old gopher, an old veteran now, you see. And the moment I find the thought crossing my mind things are not what they used to be, <laughs> I count to ten, because that is the role of old veterans through the ages. And when, when you and I started, I'm sure there were 
some old blokes who'd done it before we had who listened to us and said, oh, what is the world coming to? Do you know what, Ken? I was about to say to you, I was going to start this interview by saying, what's the world coming to, Ken? (laughs) Things aren't what they used to be. In fact, in in your book, one of the many things you say in your book is that we talk now about us all going to hell in a handbasket and there's never been a political time like this because everybody hates each other and so on. But you say in your book that, that the 80s and 90s were the most vicious time in... And some of it. I mean, the, the viciousness was not so personal. It was, I, and I don't think it was so low level as it is now. Uh, but there were equal critical crises. I mean, the, take the one of the most controversial events of my lifetime. The, the, the miners' strike in the mm. Mrs. Thatcher's miners' strike was, I think, the gravest political social crisis I remember the country going through. And the country was fiercely divided. And one thing we had then, which we don't have now, was that were outbreaks of violence. I, I come from a mining county, and, and I had a, still had a pit in my constituency in those days. Uh, and uh, they were working miners in Nottinghamshire. We were always falling out with the Yorkshire miners, who were always the more militant ones. Uh, and I remember making visits to Mansfield to do a meeting, and I had to go through a police roadblock on the outside of the town to get in. Why was I coming into Mansfield? And uh, in my own constituency, my miners at Cotgrave, I won't say mine, but my constituent miners at Cotgrave uh, were going to work, but there were pickets coming up from Kent every day to try to stop them, Kent being one of the militant areas, and the policemen came from Essex, and they were having fights up and down the village street whilst all my constituents were going to work over the fields at the back to avoid all the trouble. So that, that you know, was the state of affairs and the politics behind it, you know, the party politics, the partisan politics, the arguments about the merits, to this day remain ferociously, divisively controversial with both sides have now created probably their mythology of mm. what it was all about. But, it, it, but so the, the idea that we've never been through anything like this before, mm. and the only previous time I remember the whole public getting divided and arguing about everything was when I was a schoolboy still. That was Suez. Suez ah. really was a transformative moment. And as a schoolboy, I remember not only all the teachers that I, and every sixth former, but half the people I knew were busily arguing the task rather ferociously one way or the other about the Suez campaign. So these things happen. That's what democracy is meant to handle. So, well, look, is I it different? It does this time. Is it different today from what it has been? Oh, in some ways, yes. The but are we, are we at a, a critical stage in relations between, not just within Parliament, or we don't have Parliament at the moment, but between politicians and between politicians and the public, because one hears endlessly... Yeah, I, I think trust in the public has never sunk so low. I mean, even in the divisive times I'm talking about, some of the most passionate advocates of both sides were devoted followers of the political leadership, the part of the political leadership they agreed with. And, and, and the, I think at the moment today, the proportion of the public who hold the political institutions, let alone the political class, in near contempt is, is dangerously high uh, and it's taken too far. The public are too cynical. Dangerously, that's... Well, it's, it, democracy 
work out. I mean, if you wish me to, I think it's not only happened here. It's something to do with the pace of change and change in society and technological change and everything else. I think it, none of the Western democracies are working in the way they have for most of my life. The, uh, uh, the, the partisan loyalties, the tribal loyalties, people feeling that they're centre-left, centre-right, uh, my family are all Labour, my family are all Conservative, across the Atlantic, we're all Republicans here, we're all Democrats, uh, and, and all that kind of thing, and, you know, shifts of opinion between these two pretty loyal blocks, changing government where one side's made a mess and the other takes over. It's true all across the continent it used to be as well, with coalitions in their case, pre-packed coalitions, big broad parties mm. in ours. Uh, that's all gone. Uh, people dislike all their politicians and they're, they're angry, they're protesting. They want to protest against politics, against the elite. There's some people who are very successful and they're happy, they're content, they, they vote for what things that, that they think would do best or is doing best. Others just vote against those people in London, those people in Washington. Haven't they you, always you produce, you, produce, you produce Trump, Brexit, uh, Salvini... Marine Le Pen, it's all the same vote. It's all exactly the same vote. The one thing that the people who actually hold them in high regard, it's, well, it's, they're not real not politicians. They say it like it is. They're angry like us and they spontaneously do things. And their solutions are simple. There are people to blame. It's all the Mexicans. It's all Brussels. It's all Les Arabes. It's, it's all immigrants. And here's this lovely guy who's socking it to him and annoying the establishment and all the other politicians. And that is changing politics quite dramatically. Really? Really worse than it used to be? Well, well, yes, well, look at all the... Well, so that the traditional tribal loyalty... I've never been terribly tribal myself, but I've been a conservative all my life. Or my adult life. The, 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 The... I mean, last election, we, the Conservatives won Mansfield and we lost Canterbury. Uh, and, and this election, uh, it's probably going to happen on a monumental scale. Uh, and, that's, and lots of people, even in this election, don't feel any great passion for either side. Uh, and a lot of people are still going to make their minds up at the last minute. But is that a bad thing? It depends how... If it's taken too far, I mean, for the public to be sceptical, I mean, pity the country that has, goes in for hero worship, that is very dangerous well, indeed. Exactly. You should certainly be sceptical and wary and understand, but you need some understanding that governments can't be popular all the time. No government's going to just do popular things. You, you, if you're just going to say that every government's got to have a focus group and an opinion poll and then do what's going to be most popular when it appears in next Tuesday's headlines, it's, it's no way of running a wealth stall. The, the governments have got to take on tough, difficult things and be judged eventually by the effect of their policies and judgment of whether the things are going all right or not. None of this instant sort of... You know, the man must be a scoundrel because he doesn't agree with me and he's just said this about something. And, and anyway, we're all used to the... It has been around for a long time among the section of the population. 
the feeling, well, I don't vote for any of them, can't see the point of it, they're all as bad as each other, it doesn't make any difference. Anyway, they're all only in it for what they can get out of it. If politics, uh, if uh, voting changed anything, they wouldn't allow it. And all that kind of thing. In fact, I think the ethical standards of politics, defending my trade union, the ethical standards of politicians are rather higher than the ethical standards of the general public. They're higher than any, other, they've got to be. any other walk of life I've been involved in, principally the law and uh, a bit of business uh, career. Most of them are in it for the right reason. Uh, there are a few scoundrels, but everybody knows they're scoundrels, so they get thrown out now. They used to be just ostracised when I started. Uh, and, and, of course, but it, it, it's... There's, there's a balance to be struck, and the balance has gone the wrong way. And uh, is that partly... short-term angry protest is not a sound basis is, is, for is a that, difficult is, world. Is that partly, in large part even, some would say... Uh, the fault of people like you, and I'm talking now inevitably about Brexit and the approach that mm. remainers of your, I'm trying to find the least offensive word, let's use a nice word, sincerely, because you, you passionately believe I've... in staying in the European Union, you passionately believe in the European Union, and you make that clear, but you also risk because of your approach, you and others like you, demonising those who take a different view. You give the impression, rightly or wrongly, you give the impression that you think if you voted against staying in Europe, if you're a Brexiteer, you're thick. Well, I, no, I've had that. I've had, you know, that, that, that is one argument that gets used when people want to challenge you. But firstly, you're quite right. I'm a lifelong believer in the European project. Northampton. I came into politics, and the reason I decided I was a Conservative, one of the things that really finally decided me was Macmillan's application to join. There's a symmetry in my career. <laughs> uh, but but I, I hope I have never dismissed except when you occasionally meet somebody saying on any subject something completely stupid because they've obviously got it completely around their necks and don't understand what they're talking about. But that doesn't happen. I, I don't dismiss the views of mine. I've never dismissed anything as, oh, well, they, they, they've all voted because they're thick. That would be bizarre. I, I do think that they take the referendum. Uh, on both sides, probably about an equal number of people, were intelligent, sensible, reasonable people, almost like you know, the general public. Uh, some of them, you know, equal numbers who were passionately, for sensible reasons, in favour of being in the EU, and a lot, a lot equally diff different sensible reasons their judgment was to be against. Probably 30% of the population either side. The votes of the others, they weren't all thick, the others, but a lot of it was a whole welling up of protest votes of one kind or another, some which cancelled each other out. That's allowed. And, 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 and uh, they weren't strictly about Europe. And it, that's why I think the result was something akin to the extraordinary... Because it surprised everybody, all, all the pundits, just knew that Remain was going to win. It was a startling result to the so-called experts, every politician and most journalists. Uh, and it, just as Trump was. And, and, and uh, it, so behind it is this bigger thing. And, it, and, it, and you say, did we make a mistake? I don't think I ever underestimated the problems over Europe. I mean, I mean 
I was against holding a referendum, and anyway, that's, that's another matter. But the, 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 I understood that we were going to have a lot of controversy over Europe because it's, for the last almost 50 years, it has been an extremely divisive issue. But isn't that partly politics. because... But I think we neglected it. The other thing that provoked all this was the crash, 2008, the end of what appeared to be the golden years that had run up to it, and then the crash, which hit a lot of people very badly. Uh, and I, I think, looking back, as someone who was in the establishment in the 1990s, I have to admit that you, no one ever wants to join the establishment, but by the time you come chance of the Exchequer, you are, really. But, but anyway, the, the, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> across the world, I think when I went to G7 finance ministers and economic finance minister councils, ECOFIN and all that, we did think we got it right. There was a great normality... Well, we knew now how to run monetary policy and fiscal policy. We were developing a globalised economy, a rules-based international order. There were these exciting new countries which were emerging, who were China, but all the other exciting new Asian and Latin American countries, who, of course, were all going to become liberal democracies once they began to hmm. join uh, the modern Western economy. And living standards were rising globally. Poverty... Uh, levels of world poverty dropped by a greater amount than they've ever dropped in history and it'll be a long time because they'll drop by the same amount again and it, you know, it was okay and, and the country was getting better in the 1990s, 2000 were like that what we never noticed was the benefits were going to about 40 odd percent of the population the young the educated the ambitious the enterprising could get themselves into London and the home counties if they're British, into the new economy. Uh, opportunities abounded. And in the old rust bucket industrial towns where they'd been de-industrialized, and the, some of the rural areas where all the, a lot of the bright young things had left and were never going to come back, they weren't doing anything for them. And as we know, in America and here and other countries... The income of the average working person does not mean change, whereas, as far as they could see, there were some people getting filthy rich, uh, thriving in this brave new world. I won't go on, as it's a familiar, it's becoming a rather cliche-risen diagnosis now, but the left behind and the fact that a lot of the public did not perceive the benefits of the new world being spread fairly and disliked the pace of change because it was threatening and leaving them behind. That, I think, has upset the apple cart. Well, there's a, there's now, a much... day-to-day politicians running a department well, or something. What you do about that, I don't know. But the next generation have really got to tackle that because the angry disaffection of a lot of people... The simple, the simple way of summing all that up, though, is to say that you, the ruling class, the politicians, simply lost touch with the people. And that's why we had that vote a few years ago. And that's why everybody said, my God, my God, what's happening? So in, in the end... Yeah, I think we also lost the ability to... We, we didn't explain it. I mean, I've already said, you, you can't just respond by, by saying, what do you want? Here it is. I mean, we're a bit of that at the moment. I mean, God knows how much money every lobby's well, been promised. Well, it's an election now. campaign. Uh, it's an election campaign, yeah. but it's, you know, it's all sounded a bit, but it's happening a lot. It, 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 somehow you've got to find some way 
uh, explaining to everybody what's going on. And if you think actually the benefits are not being perceived to be spread fairly, but are not being spread fairly, realize you've got to react. I mean, always when you're in government particularly, of course you have to be conscious of is what we're doing popular? If not, why not? What are we going to do to make it popular? And all that. Sometimes you just put your tin hat on and say, well, when they see it works, it will be popular. But there's not that kind of relationship now with the public. Well, it, but, but a lot of things have changed, on. haven't they? And one of the things that's changed is social media, which you didn't have no, when you were a young man. disastrous and, in and, my age, old man's opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, 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 disastrous may be because people no longer have to listen to you guys in the way that they once did. They can talk to each other in the way that they couldn't before. And they switch out views they don't agree with. But I mean, we've always done that. Every extreme right-wing person, every extreme left-wing person knows that the BBC's biased. Yes. If you're a hardline yes. Marxist, the yep. BBC's a capitalist plot. Yep. If you're a hardline right-wing nationalist, the BBC's a socialist yep. uh, establishment plot. Yep. Uh, and that's because if you listen to the BBC, you have to listen to interviewing people you don't agree with. Quite. Putting forward opinions that you don't like. You go on the social media... And the only people you need to exchange views with are, uh -huh. are people who share how your many own people in this prejudices. How many of you think the BBC is biased? Hand up if you do. And those who think it is not biased? All right. Well, Settle for that. We both agree with that. It's a very comforting audience, John. So the, we're part of the Westminster bubble here, quite plainly. Well, 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 clearly. So, look, what is the answer then? Um, I mean, what a dumb question because it's such a vast question. But how do you, if we accept, if you accept, no matter what I think, if you accept that the politicians have broadly lost touch with the people, how do you reconnect? Well, that's the problem for the next generation. I think you've got to find a style, a method of communicating what you're doing and getting back a sense of what the public thinks happening and what they feel, you know, back. That's different from my generation. Uh, I mean, the days of town hall meetings, the days when the only thing you need to do is have a press conference mm. uh, and then go on the radio and go on the television and actually on serious programmes, because you're not going to bother with rubbishy knockabout programmes. So <laughs> uh, that does have a slight tendency. You know, the traditional politics, you're only really being followed by the section of the pol uh, public who are as interested in politics as you are, which, let's face it, is, is a minority, and that's inevitable, because you've got to be slightly dotty to be that obsessed with politics as, as you and I are. Uh, and there are plenty, plenty, a lot of perfectly reasonable people who don't follow it particularly. And nowadays, it's, it's all fragmented, and you've got all these social media sites, and the newspapers aren't being read anymore, uh, and there are thousands of alternatives to television and radio, so I regret to say that a lot of young people never watch television at all. It's only, you know, it, it is... You've got to find some method of communicating, and the, somehow the, the, the language 
I'm being very earnest this evening, but the, the fact that normally when you make a speech as a politician, I've always been on the basis that the people have, if you've got a live audience, I says they've turned up because they're seriously interested in politics. They don't want to hear you talking lightweight rubbish. Uh, you may, they think you're talking rubbish, but you better well make it sound as though you're talking serious rubbish and you better tell them <laughs> what you're, because what, yeah, you believe it and, and you're trying to explain it. We, that's got to be added to. We haven't found the, 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 the political... I don't think of anybody who gets struck me as having a new style that rebuts this populism and this cynicism with which traditional politics is being treated. But always has done, Ken. All always the standards, has. we've lowered the standards and gone down to a rather childish level of debate, which I'm afraid, in my view, is largely... This but, 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 it, but is it any, any more childish than a politician, a Labour politician, a very distinguished Labour politician a few decades ago calling the Tories vermin, lower than vermin, Nyron Bevan? I mean, it's not as if 50, 60, 70 years ago there was this great um, mutual admiration between the people and the politicians. If, if he'd done nothing... Other than say that, <laughs> that would have done it, wouldn't uh, it? Yes, you yes, would have yes, taken yes. the faintest notice of yeah, uh, Nybevan, but you said it, I have no doubt, in the middle. I never heard Nybevan, but he obviously was brilliantly eloquent, and he also was a very considerable political thinker. Mm. I mean, he had ch- you go into politics to make a difference, he knew what difference he wanted to make, yes, he, he had made it, he knew what, to, and he was trying to rouse the enthusiasm of his audience, and he'd. He didn't just give them the details of how the new health service was going to be structured or what the arrangements were going to be for the recruitment of midwives or anything, because even in those days, that wouldn't have held your uh, audience for very long. He could liven it up with a few attacks on his opponents, and that's one of his famous ones, lower than vermin. But Nye Bevan was a, a great presenter. And what were controversial politics? I mean, Bevan's opponents thought he was a communist at the point of supporting the country. All right, talk about politicians today. Um, Your views on Boris Johnson? No, I no, 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 that, that when I'm now reached a stage in, he in, in back radio then, and television. Did you notice that? Well, because again, one problem at the moment is it's all personalities. Well, it's always so, been. So, so, Ken, come on, it's always me, been. No, yes. it's not quite. There were more personalities because it wasn't just. We Maggie have, Thatcher the moment wasn't we have a this personality. Quite, we have this half-baked presidential system now, where there are only th- you know, three people actually, because you've got little parties. Every now and again, they crowd the stage, and you've got to have seven of them. Uh, <laughs> It's all about their personalities. And, and, and just like Nine is great, he's worse than Vermin, if you give a long interview, you know, I may give a long interview and think, now ah, there we are, I've given a profound statement on something or other. If in the middle of it I've said something rude about Boris... That's what will be picked that up. That is that's the what I'm asking you. That we can report. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, why, that's why every interviewer asks you. They try to draw you. No, but, and but I don't there, always succeed but, in but keeping there, up. But there, is a, there is a serious point here. A number of people, when they knew I was going to talk to you tonight, said to me, ask him how he's going to vote in the election. So I'm asking you how you're going to vote. Well, I haven't quite made my mind up. I am. What? <laughs> <laughs> No, I've said it before. No, I, I think I've said it publicly because the, the, actually the Liberal candidate's using it on his leaflets in my constituency. But I, 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 I'm, 
You're, you're old enough to remember Orpington Man. Yes. I, I, I'm in the position, nobody here knows what we're talking about. It, it was a spectacular by-election uh, in the 60s, I think, early 60s. By the way, he is now doing what is known in the trade as ducking the question. No, I'm not. Orpington <laughs> Man was, it was a Conservative seat that went Liberal. Uh, and, and that was a protest vote. Discontented Conservatives voted Liberal as a protest. It's happened... The fate of the Liberal Democrats has usually been to be the vehicle for protest votes of one kind or another, uh, and they've never quite built up a big enough thing. So I'm one of those Conservatives who's thinking of voting Liberal Democrat. Uh, Michael Heseltine's gone further than me. He's around campaigning for defending everybody to vote Liberal Democrat. I... Uh, I am a lifelong Conservative. That won't surprise you in the slightest. Yes. So I voted Conservative in every general election because yeah. I've been a candidate at every general election <laughs> uh, since, since I was old enough to vote. <laughs> I lost the first two. Uh, but but, but, but uh, that I really, as a lifelong believer in the European project, as someone who went to great lengths at the, in the very interesting end of my career, coder of my parliamentary career, to whatever else we're going to do, we're going to stop leaving with no deal, no withdrawal agreement, no sudden leaving. You know, I'm being asked to vote Conservative again, and my views are still in line with the mainstream policies of the Conservative Party for the first 60 years of my um, membership, it's, it's changed a bit uh, well, you've since been, the referendum. You had the whip. I, I, I guess in this room, I think there are a lot of people in the country, lifelong conservatives like me, who are not sure they're going to vote conservative. What this will make time. up your mind? And on the Labour side, there are masses of them not sure they're going to vote Labour this time. But what will make up your mind? What more gets said on. What, what, uh, where we think we're going, uh, really. So what does Boris Johnson uh, I, I, have to we, say to persuade Ken Clark? To make me really confident that I should stick, because I'm not hostile to Boris particularly, uh, but, but, but what, what, what he'd have to say to make me confident, happily vote Conservative, would be to give some extremely clear indication of what it is he's going to negotiate and what the objective well, you know is. We, we know, know what the deal is. All we're dealing with is this three preliminary points in a perfectly straightforward withdrawal agreement, which should have all been sorted out in yeah. the first six months. But, but it it's wasn't. now a rather silly one with a border no, Nonetheless, the we are where we are. So what could he say at this stage? That he's going to go for not just the you know, broad phases about friendly relationships that we are going to try to keep intact as far as possible all our economic and trading drives, the membership, free access to the biggest and richest free trade area in the world, which our economy in the 21st century needs, meaning we accept there are rules. You can't have a trade deal with anybody if you don't have some understanding on product standards, labour standards and all this kind of thing. We're, if you don't want to stay in the single market, you don't want to stay in the customs union, well, let's have regulatory alignment and a customs So you settle for that? So it doesn't have to be membership? Soft, soft breaks. Because I... All right. Politics is compromise and pragmatism, and I've compromised a lot because my 
I voted against invoking Article 50. If I thought it would work, I'd you know, support revoking Article 50, but you'll never get a... I've resigned to faith, thanks to this blasted referendum, you'll never get a parliamentary majority for that. That's why I would settle for the softest possible Brexit, and I haven't got on to mention all the... We should carry on as now on the anti-terrorism, intelligence sharing international policing, uh, medicines licensing. You'll have to change it because we're leaving and that some things we have to have arrangements. But that kind of in-depth relationship with our most important allies in the world and our most important market, I'd settle for. But and you're not satisfied with what air. he is offering at the moment? Well, I don't, know. I don't think anybody knows what he's offering. I think... My guess is that if he gets a majority, he will settle down and start thinking about, about all this, about what, where we then go and what he is going to exactly negotiate, because it's just broad But brush, were, they, were they then into that, the that dangerous territory from a negotiator's point of view, where you can't give you, disclose your hand? I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable position, isn't it, to say, I can't tell you precisely what I'm going to do, because I'm going to be sitting on the opposite side of a negotiating table. Uh, but but the, the objectives I outright, it, it is quite obvious on both sides of the table... Obviously you can. What, your, ..what the practical interests of the other party are. All this stuff that we had to pretend we wanted to leave with no deal because otherwise they wouldn't give us anything, there's... The sort of people you're negotiating with know perfectly well that no withdrawal agreement would be a total catastrophe for the British. They also, we know, and they know, that it would also not do them any good either. Yeah, but that's uh, why we can't Ireland. withdraw it, he would argue. Anyway, you look, can't, you can't, can't, if you're, if you're, I've done lots of negotiating, you might have all these people in the House of Commons claim they've done a lot of negotiating, I don't think most of them have. The, 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 the idea that you sit there by making preposterous protestations that you're going to you know, put a pistol to your head unless they give you uh, some... It's, it's nonsense. It, 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 you, of course, the details, when I say regulatory alignment, don't get me wrong, negotiating the actual terms of the regulatory alignment you're going to have for goods, this is it, trading goods, that'll take experts, specialist knowledge of many sectors of the economy a very long time but before you've got a piece point. of paper. You, you'll be casting your vote in a matter of days. That's the whole point. Yeah, but so I'd like to know that we're heading for something that preserves as much of the economic benefits of the EU as possible and does something to try to retain some of our political voice in the world because I personally believe, as every conservative leading conservative, every prime minister I've ever served under, every government I've ever served in, every conservative mainstream conservative politician has until three years ago, that being in the EU makes Britain a much more powerful country politically. But you lost that interest. argument, and there we go. Yeah. We are where and we are. Economically, because we were a laughing stock before we... I, I don't have these nostalgic memories of the 1960s that others seem to have. We were an economic laughing stock before we joined, being left behind by countries that had been devastated in the war. Uh, and it, it's not the only reason we now have the makings of a potential modern economy and so on, but, you know, but it's been the basis, particularly when we, the British, a Conservative government, 
persuaded the Europeans to go move to the single market, it's one of the key bases on which we've built up uh, a comparatively thriving position in the modern world. And that, the second bit, we could largely keep. Because you can't get a trade agreement with anybody if you say, I, I want you to throw your markets open to me. Uh, of course, we're not going to have any rules. I, we're sovereign. We'll decide what, what rules we have. Uh, we just want you to open your markets to us. And, uh, or do you insist on setting things to us? Well, it's all right, so long as you comply with whatever the rules we have are. That, that's, that's ludicrous. You wouldn't right. get... Let me, Papua uh, New Guinea to agree to that, and they're probably they're, they're no doubt very shrewd in Papua New uh, Guinea. You get angry in nowhere. We, we we could talk about this all night, couldn't we? I'm not going to. Uh, let no, me. I'm, ask, I'm, you're getting me bogged down in the details of European policy. I no, well, not exactly, not exactly. But I still haven't had an answer from you as to how you're going to vote. No, I'll take it. I haven't made my mind up. You haven't made your mind up. Exactly. I shall just see. And, I, I, and, I, and it, there's it, no time. Anyway, let's let's put that it, to one side. For the moment, and, and let's see what the audience would like to know I'm from I'm a doubtful you. conservative. You're a doubtful conservative. I would say to you as a canvasser. <laughs> okay. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, so I'm uh, one more question then. I am the uh, person on the knocker, as it were. I'm, I'm, I'm the Tory with a nice little thing in my hand, and, and I, you open the door to me and I say, and how are you going to vote then, Mr. Clark? Can, can we rely on your vote? And you're going to say, I'm a doubtful concern. What does he or she, the knocker on the door, have to say to persuade you to vote for them? Um, well, you may as well canvas has put down sometimes, but the, uh, <laughs> the optimistic ones will stand, well, they stand there and argue with you, give you a slogan, go away and say, put your hands conservative. But what should say, they say to get you? Well, no. They, well, they won't, no, they, we don't do knocking up on the day anymore, well, no, but they, they're, they're not going to knock you up, are they, really? Well, they're not going to turn you out, because you're not sure, unless they If I mentioned doubtful conservative, it was a marginal seat, they probably would. Mm. But they go back and... That's it, isn't I it? I mean, what you've got to try and do is... is, is you're trying to get a sense of what depends what you're doing. We're canvassing nowadays. We used to do all this knocking up because people didn't have cars and things and you give lifts. Nowadays, they just seem to be checking on the opinion polls a lot of the time. Uh, if, you, if you've got an organisation, you've got to start thinking, if you're picking up a lot of people like this, what can we... 
put in our leaflets that might get more of these people to be cheered up and come on side. And uh, if, if you can work out, get out of you why you're doubtful, who, what can we say? Who can we say? Can we send somebody along, try and get this bloke to make his mind up? You sound like a grumpy old man. I'm practicing. I, 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 repeat, I repeat what I said outside. I said, I am practicing to be a grumpy old man. Uh, my children say I need no practice, whatever. But, uh, uh... Questions, ladies and gentlemen. There, there's microphones up there and in, in the. There we are. Uh, Mr. Clark, what's your likely view on the outcome of this election? Who will win a majority? And if no one, who, which party do you think will have the majority to form a coalition in the Hung government? Assuming there is a coalition. Well, 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 firstly, I think this election is more unpredictable than any I can remember. Without boring on with my theme a moment ago, I've never known the the population so angry and and volatile uh, and because traditional loyalties are broken down in a different way. You know, conservative loyalties are broken down in London and the home counties and Labour loyalties are broken down in Barnsley and, and all this kind of thing. It's very difficult to predict. Um, so I, that's a caveat, get me out in the first place. The, the, the only one who could win a majority is Boris, I think. I think that's already clear. There could be a Conservative majority and the only alternative is a hung parliament. That's really because only two things have happened of any uh, significance since uh, it started. Uh, the, the first is the Brexit party has collapsed. Uh, Nigel Farage keeps forming political parties, which are really Farage parties. He, he, he gets in extreme right-wing people of varying kinds, some perfectly sensible people, I'm sure. No, I'm not dismissing crowds of my opponents and all the rest of it. But if you form an extreme right-wing party, you get a lot of oddballs uh, all mixed up with them. Uh, and they all start falling out with each other. Even Nigel uh, can't, uh, can't do much about that. His original UKIP's gone wandering off now. Uh, and they all fell out with each other about whether they were all going to stand and whether they were all going to carry on. And he, I don't think he, it didn't look to me as though he wanted to withdraw or half his candidates. But since he's withdrawn his half his candidates, it's reduced the position of the... The, the Brexit party to being slightly ridiculous and irrelevant and it's collapsed and, and the Conservatives have branded themselves as the Brexit party and it's put them way in the lead in the polls because the remainders are divided but the collapse of the Brexit party who did look as though they were going to be a substantial fourth force has put the, the chances of success firmly in the hands of the Conservative. The second thing that's happened, as it's been, in my opinion, is it's, it's become perfectly obvious that Jeremy Corbyn could not be elected Prime Minister of this country if he carried on trying for a thousand years. He is absolutely, uh, he costs his party vast number of votes. If we're in the politics of my earlier years and some bright social democrat of the moderate wing of the Labour Party was leading the Labour Party at the moment, they'd be in head in the polls, a bit out of sight, uh, winning easily. But every Labour 
MP I bumped into and Labour campaigners tell me they're spending their life having to say to people on doorsteps, yeah, it's all right, but I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and trying to explain why you should vote for them. So he's unelectable. Can I just stop you there for things. one second? And that means a hung parliament is a possibility. <laughs> just one, one second. Does that, does that make you sad or happy that the Tories, uh, the, the, the Labour Party is going to lose because of Jeremy Corbyn? Or would you prefer the Labour Party to have what you would regard, and I suspect many people in this room would regard as a reasonable leader, a reasonable leader of the opposition, who would give the Tories a real fight. Would you prefer... I prefer that. I I think politics has been best. It's worked best in the... I mean, you know, in the national interest, as I think you do have to bear in mind, it works best when you have a government in power and you have a perfectly acceptable government-in-waiting that, quite obviously, would be quite capable of replacing them and be different, because it disagrees, but, you know, it wouldn't be be all right. Uh, And that has worked uh, well over the years. Actually, when I've been in government, governments function better when you're facing a lot of rather competent people giving you a good run for your money, because it's quite obvious... They could run a government as, as well. Uh, and, and then there's a genuine choice. Uh, and, and I don't know, uh, I mean, with hindsight, at the time, it was a very one-sided election because we made a complete... We'd torn ourselves apart in an argument about the last Maastricht bill. But, you know, the major government versus the Blair opposition, that's a, a kind of choice that's in the national interest I, uh, and well, I, I think most of the elections before that fall roughly into that category uh, 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 and the the, the, uh, the last time that the, one of the parties made itself unelectable was, was Michael Foote but Foote was not as unpopular as Corbyn is and, and Foote was a more credible character not as an administrator, I think, right. him, but he was a very, a very nice, very distinguished, very eloquent man. And he wasn't as left-wing, I don't think, as the Corbynistas. Uh, and, and so usually you've had that choice. Here we are in the middle of an historic crisis where we're probably going to determine Britain's role in the world and our relationships with the world and certainly our economic relationships with the world in a fairly important way for the next generation or two. And, and neither party is in its normal condition. They're both slightly bizarre versions of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party as they were during most of so, my career. So may and I, I, may I, I regret I... that. So I'd like the good, credible Labour Party because it would make the Conservative Party come to the senses, in my biased view, and start presenting a programme for... serious programme for government and then the intelligent people would decide. That's so, then so, you're answerable to the judgment of the electorate. So may I, may I do what journalists are renowned for doing? In fact, it's probably the first commandment for journalists, which is first simplify, then exaggerate. And, uh, and, and what you've just said, I see the headline in tomorrow's papers, Clark calls for the return of Blair. Is that... Um, <laughs> 
that, that, that's probably the headline will appear because of the marvellous habit of sub-editors of just ever so slightly yeah, just, just a little, putting a nuance on what you've actually yeah, said. It, yeah. Yeah. Like I say, first simplify that exactly. The Blair but, government wasn't a bad government oh, oh, until, sorry, the, apart from going into Iraq, which I'm afraid of ever blighted well, his yeah, quite. reputation. Number two, Michael, number two. Hello. Thank you very much, Mr. Clark, for your very interesting statements. May I draw you out on one point? You say that the Conservative Party has become a bizarre version of itself. Did I? So, <laughs> <laughs> That's close enough, Ken, yes. So could you forecast what is going to happen to it now? Is it going to become a nationalist, xenophobic, ultra-right-wing version of the party you joined, mm. or is it going to move back to becoming more of the One Nation Conservative Party of which you've long been a supporter? Is this the end of the Tory party as we know well, it? I think it will come back, because I think the great bulk of people in the Conservative Party it hasn't changed. I mean, in both parties, I think... I think because unless public opinion has changed in its nature in the United Kingdom, pulling back towards the centre will eventually happen, although at the moment public opinion is as polarised as political opinion on this one toxic topic of, of Brexit. But, I mean, there are extreme right-wing people in the party and extreme left-wing people in the Labour Party who assumed they were going to purge the, 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 we, you know, let's safe, take the safe example of the Labour Party. Some of the Corbynistas hate Blairites more than they hate Tories. Uh -huh. uh, and we're going to deselect them all yeah. and all the rest of it. Well, fortunately, I, I don't think it's going to happen to either party because they haven't actually purged many people. And actually, out there, the sort of people who are candidates, the sort of people who actually are going to determine things, the parliamentary parties are, haven't fundamentally altered. It's the hysteria of the moment. And actually, the Conservative Party, we haven't staked ourselves to anything that's, you know, sort of launching out into some great new, extraordinary phrase. The broad brush things that have been said are all compatible with eventually producing a sensible agreement, a close agreement, on some of times I was saying, and actually working out that we do have to live in the modern world and that we're not going to be some living in some isolationist splendour, either politically or economically. After all this, there's really nothing very specific that's been said that wouldn't stop a new Conservative government becoming a perfectly orthodox, quite normal type of Conservative government in what it actually does. And would that it require it might, a it new... Might, it might mean Boris slipping away from ah. the exact words he's used occasionally once or twice, but he's <laughs> done that once or twice before. <laughs> so, I think he so, but he could do it. Boris Johnson could do it, could reunite. He's an intelligent man, he could. Well, he's an intelligent man. And he'll he... want to. He keeps, I mean... It all, you, I mean, he keeps saying in public that he's a one-nation conservative. Mm -hmm. and, but he has to. He, he says that to me as well. And some of his instincts are true. I mean, he is. I mean, he's not. Doesn't have. A, it doesn't have an illiberal past. Yeah. Apart from again, his. Uh, I, I realise that some people think he's an unfortunate choice of phrase. And, some of his articles on, on Muslim women and things perhaps uh, might uh, dispute that. But, the, 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 but he does, he's not an illiberal man. And, he's not, and, and until, the, until the day the, the referendum 
campaign started, I would not have said Bre he was a particularly right-wing conservative, personally. Apart can from I, the can else, I, I had no idea. You? He was a Brexiteer. I'm not sure he did. I, and, and I never, <laughs> never heard him express the opinion that we should actually leave the European Union before. <laughs> yeah, number four. Mr. Clark, can you think of any good reason for Britain leaving the European Union? <laughs> not a good question. Yeah, well, I, I, again, because I am a, a sort of moderate, sort of centrist sort of politician, so I, I ought to be able to think there are a lot of things wrong with the EU, but people tend to say that, and then they're rather thin quite often in specific things they want to do. One of David Cameron's problems when, in order to justify the delay before he called the referendum, said he was going to get reforms, but conversation I had with him, he hadn't the first idea what reforms he was going to seek, really, which was one of the snags when he embarked on that. Uh, uh, but, but, but the... the, 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 the I mean, the, like every international institution, the European Union is slow, bureaucratic, uh, constantly having to compromise. Now, that is inevitable with any international organisation through the United Nations, through NATO, through the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization, been all of them, I'm afraid. Uh, and they drive you up the wall if you're a normal, impatient politician wanting to take decisions. It's because once you've got more than half a dozen countries, all with their own domestic politics, their own media, their own short-term pressures, elections coming and so on, it's no good just thinking you can sit down, have a committee meeting, or take a vote, and move, sort that out in a couple of hours and move on to the next thing. You have to have these tortuous processes, these rather multiple organisations, and so the EU is tortuously slow sometimes. I, I sort of, I'm an impatient, combative sort of guy, really. But I, somehow I used to like European meetings, but I would have to suspend my normal things. I'd settle down to hours and hours of 20-odd people all making a speech about it and nothing being sorted out at the end because, you know, next time we might make some progress. Right, but that's not is a it, reason to leave, you can work? is it? Well, I, you could try... It would be not a reason to leave, no. So I'm explaining why we Indeed, shouldn't but, leave but because can of you think that. Of the why, we leave that. why I supported Maastricht, why we needed structural reforms to make it just a little less exasperatingly, um, frustratingly slow. And reason for leave, what, what do they do that I deeply object to, what they engage us in? I hate to say, I mean, it makes, it makes me sound, I obviously am. Absolutely, one of the worst of the worst of the worst. I can't think of a, a reason to justify leaving it, because I don't actually. No one's explained to me what they think we gain by leaving it. They, 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 they all say, "Oh, we're going to run our own affairs, take back control, uh, and uh, all those all those regulations." So you say, "Well, what regulations?" All right, well, let's, not, let's not rerun. Uh, let, <laughs> Let, let's not rerun the, the, the referendum debate. You cannot think of a single reason, even if they were to announce next Thursday... Week, not to justify leaving. Justify leaving. Yeah. So if they wanted a European army, if they wanted to... Yeah, whatever. Well, they haven't. You can block a European army. Well, no, they're not going to have a but, European right, army. Right, but so there isn't a single the, thing that they could do, however expansionist... Oh, they could do things that would make me relieve. And and what, yeah. 
Uh, well, 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 when you take some sort of bizarrely aggressive foreign policy stance and want everybody to sign up to it in the Middle East or something mad. We, we have a lot of common interests we've got to protect together. We should cooperate with them. But again, we see we're one of the big three. So long as we're there, that we were not going to start engaging in some oddball policy at the, led by some other populist from some other European country because... Uh, you either have a veto in practice, even if you formally don't have a veto, in the end, if the Germans say they're not doing it, if the French say they're not doing it, if the British say they're not doing it, it doesn't, it happen. doesn't happen. Yep. And all the smaller countries used to rely on the fact that the big three didn't dominate it because they never all agree with each other. So at any given stage, you could set off two against one and you'd find the French and English should be on one, British should be on one side and the Germans on the other or you know, whatever combination you got. Um, so, that, I mean, obviously, some things I would draw the line out completely, but they've never been seriously proposed. And... And I don't believe that you know, at the time of the referendum, I think we were warned that they were about to bring in a regulation banning kettles. But I don't think anybody ever has proposed a regulation to ban kettles. And I'd object to that very strongly, but I, 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 I wouldn't leave if it was promulgated. I think there are bigger reasons on well, the other side. Well, that'll be a great relief to them, Ken, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a question back there, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm interested in tackling climate change crisis, um, as I'm sure lots of others are. Is there any outcome from this election that you think is more likely to lead to faster, more serious action nationally, but particularly internationally, on tackling the climate crisis? Hmm. Well, I, I think one good thing that's coming out of the election is it is consolidating the rather remarkable change in opinion that's changed in the last two years. I mean, within the last couple of years, maybe all down to David Attenborough, the, the, the public opinion has become overwhelmingly convinced that something's got to be done about climate change and that we are not doing enough and all that. Now, of course, there's a minority who disagree with that, but scarcely anybody who's any serious position in practicing politics. And I think the great majority of the public, overwhelmingly amongst the young, uh, are just now angry and impatient and something's got to be done about climate change. Uh, it hasn't got much further than that. We have done quite a lot. We're all practically proud of having reduced carbon emissions more than any other OECD member, I think, and all that. But... Now the scientists are probably right. I mean, they're persuading me that we've got to go much, much quicker than this. But who's what, going to no, make it nobody, happen? Well, well, nobody's spelled out any policies that really do that. Because at the moment, the, the, the campaigners and the public are all agreed that much more urgency on climate change. Not, it's quite difficult to agree, get anybody to agree, certainly get anybody to advocate openly the specific things we would have to do, which would involve quite dramatic cost and changes to aspects of our lifestyle. So at the moment, we've reached a stage of enthusiastic swapping of targets and broad assertions, and everybody's now passing votes to declare a climate emergency. Well, that's, that's made a huge difference. Now we're all calling it an emergency. And, 
Uh, your target is 2050, mine will be 2035, and uh, it's not good enough, it isn't 2025, and all this. Quite what we're going to do to make a significant reduction in carbon emissions and actually influence other similar nations to help take the lead in doing it, we haven't quite got there. And all the unpopular things, which a lot of these were in the short term, be quite unpopular when they're first announced. Everybody shouts them. Extinction Rebellion will no more advocate them uh, than the, the, the Brexit Party uh, will advocate them. So. Just to be provocative, I'm not suggesting, don't get me reported tomorrow as actually suggesting this is practical politics. I, I tease people, it's, it's slightly self-indulgent, forgive me, but the, 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 when I give you the examples. Two things that would make a difference, I, because I actually introduced them both. So we should obviously reintroduce the fuel tax escalator. Uh, this fuel tax freeze, it's utterly ridiculous if you're worried about green policies and you've got to start making it, people start thinking seriously about using their cars less. So bring back the fuel tax escalator and air passenger tax, which I introduced, is wholly inadequate. It's about bloody time and if I was back in the Treasury, I would also say to myself, raise some money and try and give it a policy reason at the same time for doing so. We certainly need some money. Um, so bring back the fuel tax escalator and air passenger, put a double air passenger tax. Now, the opinion poll will tell you that 95% of the public were totally opposed to both those. It would be political death for anybody seriously to advocate either of those measures in the election. I could go on. There's a whole lot more like that. Now, but public opinion is right in the right place and is going to put pressure on whoever forms a government after this election. And if we can acquire some political skills, you, you have got actually to do it, sell it, do it steadily. I'm not squeamish about my arts. You've got to time it well, about my trade, my politics, but, you know, but you've got to time it properly. Face the storm when you can afford to face the storm. Say people why it's been done. Say it's not too bad when you've done it. Get back to the skills of persuading the public. And if you want to do something about climate change, this is doing that same climate change. Might go wrong. President Macron was faced, brought in a perfectly good green tax, and that's what led to the creation of the yellow jackets. He's been facing violence in the streets ever since. And so it's tricky. And that's why I say I think the arts of politics. I had a very popular first budget. Um, uh, whether it was any good or not, I'll leave others to judge. But at least I think nobody argues it was hugely popular. I couldn't believe it because nobody noticed I'd raised the tax burden on the country with the greatest amount in any single budget since the war. But I'd slipped in a penny reduction in income tax at the end. And, and that, was, uh, that was the exit line. And it seemed to work. Something more subtle than that is going to be required to get some more movement on climate change. I think. But isn't it monumental? I don't know. I suspect this might have been uh, at, at the back of our questioner's mind there. Is, isn't it monumentally depressing that there are plenty of politicians out there, serious politicians, and there are certainly plenty of people, especially young people, probably the vast majority of young people, certainly thinking young people, who regard climate change as so much the biggest issue facing us today, far bigger than Brexit, 
talking about the future of the planet. Isn't it desperately sad that there is no serious politician prepared to stand up in front of the cameras and say, ladies and gentlemen, we are facing the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced, and therefore what we should be doing are these things that will occasion huge sacrifices on the part of the population. I know it's going to be unpopular. I know the opinion polls will tell me apart. But nonetheless, that's what I believe in. That's what, there isn't a single senior no, well, well, politician out there who has the nerve to do that. And, and, there's, and there's no... I mean, I said, I said a moment ago, I'm not squeamish about my trade, that you, it would be any subject absolutely suicidal yeah, to start producing your most difficult policies at the time of the election, as Quite. Theresa May but what uh, a powerful time had a to perfectly do it. sensible policy on social care. It was the only grown-up policy either party put forward. I was one of the few people who defended it, but that didn't last for more than about 48 hours. Uh, that, that, that you just don't do that in the middle of an election. Of course, an election, you're busily putting forward things that you think are popular and you're shutting up uh, about other things. But um, you, you, you do the unpopular things in the... If you get a proper majority, if Boris gets a proper majority... All the things you think you've got to do, A, in the national interest, B, in order to look like a successful government in three or four years' time, which is the timescale you should be thinking of, not next week's newspapers, but what are you going to look like in three or four years' time, do those in the first half of the parliament. I'm quite open to the argument in the real world of democratic politics. Once you realise you've got an election in the next year or two, all your other bright ideas, which are going to not be very popular, uh, put them in the drawer, and you're going to be able to do those if you get another majority. That's how Thatcher worked. I mean, whatever else you may think about Thatcher, she was a conviction politician, never read newspapers, couldn't care less about opinion polls. We were immensely unpopular as a government. I was a minister all the way through. I never had a popular policy over something in my department that I was implementing. Half, most of the time, I was in the middle of wild controversy. We sank in the opinion polls to astonishingly low levels. Uh, but you, you laid off a bit uh, towards the end. Uh, you didn't do anything too dramatic in the last 18 months or so. If you'd got it right if what you'd done actually was beginning to have some effect, people forgot they were ever against it. <laughs> and they think, oh, they're not doing too badly, so I suppose somebody had to do it. And we got re-elected. And, and, and that is so far removed from where we are now. But tough, no one's ready, I think, with tough green policies. But if someone had tough green policies, get, get your uh, majority and then the first year or two, have a tough environment minister who's going to just get on and do it, and a chancellor who's prepared to put his tin hat on and bring back the fuel tax escalator, for example, which I hasten to add, in case the journalists here, I'm not seriously advocating, I should be denounced. The Conservative Party will put out ferocious press releases denying that there are any such suggest. I think we've, I think we've said a fuel tax freeze will remain when we everything else has been frozen. I think, uh, but, but, but when you get back to the real world in your governing, first part of the Parliament do it. Second part of the Parliament, I hope it's worked. If it's if it hasn't, you're doomed anyway. If it's working a bit, you might get by. I mean, and we yeah, and and we we can assume that your first speech in the House of Lords. It's going to be along those lines. <laughs> I don't think I get that. Sort of thing. <laughs> I yeah. How many of you here think he should be in the House of Lords? <laughs> <laughs> Done deal. <laughs> yeah, 
Question, question back there, yeah. Um, number, number four. In your, what is the likelihood of the uh, first-past-the-post system ever changing? And would you like it to change? Well, no, I, I wouldn't. I've always defended it. Um, I've always defended it because it's extremely good discipline on the politicians and an extremely good discipline on the public. Uh, because, because the first part of the post system, we force our politicians to produce big, broad-based, pre-packed coalitions. The British Labour Party and the British Conservative Party would not be a single party in any other country with the exception of the United States, where the same pressures apply. Uh, Tony Blair and George Galloway were happily in the same political party for over a decade, which would not be possible in any other system, and the good examples on the Tory side as well. Uh, and so you have to, this wide range of centre-left, left, centre-right, right people put together a body of things that agree on. They've got any sense, not in too much detail in the manifesto, but a broad understanding of what they're then presenting. And so a pre-packed coalition is put to the public. Now, the public, who otherwise might be tempted to vote for all kinds of things, you know, the, this individual person has a particularly strong view on, on, you know, some planning policy down the road or has particularly strong views on what we ought to be doing uh, in, you know, about nurses or, or whatever. Um, there's danger they vote for little narrow it's interest parties which uh, and you get you fragment the result and I think the British are particularly bad would be at forming coalitions although the one we had in 2010 was amazingly successful to my surprise but normally we may find at this election if we have a hung parliament trying to get a coalition out of parties that have rather sectioned themselves into little silos is quite difficult. So that's how I've always defended it. Right. it. It forces the public and not just the politicians to face up to the real business of government, not just indulging yourself because you happen to like this particular form of Trotskyism or whatever it is, and you're going for the narrow party which will get six seats. And we've got about six or seven parties in Parliament already. Now, that is breaking down. The, 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 the first-past-the-post system is not having that effect because both the major parties, I won't right, go into the dangerous business of using rather loose language about how to, both, the major, both the major parties are not in their usual condition at this uh, particular okay. election. But I th I hope if you look at this present, wouldn't... wouldn't a, a, a proportional representation make it even worse. You we'll probably get, get ten parties in Parliament almost incapable of agreeing with each other unless we rediscover the arts of compromise and pragmatism in right. Westminster, which we've rather lost. At the moment. We've got ten minutes left. Can try and fit in a couple of quick ones. Number four, and, that, and then can we get a microphone As you know here? From this your gentleman's program, been trying John, for ages to ask questions. So off you go. I, I, I always ask to give short answers and never do. John's suffered that for years. <laughs> Well, Mr. Clark, maybe a short question. Do we pay MPs enough? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yes or no, Ken? It's about right. I'm glad we've taken it out of their hands. Nobody accepts it out of their hands. Every time you give a pay rise, it will be immensely unpopular. 
Uh, so there's always, as long as you brace yourself for an outburst of rage the morning after the raises does, it, it's about right. You, you've got to try to attack um, amongst the people you get in. You want a representative crowd, but you've got to try to attract some of the best brains, some of the best people in the country. If you really want a good government, you've got to accept you're going to have people in it who could make a, l a lot more money and a much easier job outside. And for that reason, you have to pay properly, and you mustn't have a you must, mustn't have a level of pay which causes people to make immense sacrifices for themselves and their families compared to what they had outside. Now, we, now we haven't got that. I'm not claiming this is an immense sacrifice now, but it's about right, and I wouldn't reduce it. If you okay. put it to an opinion poll, 95% of the public would say they're paid too much, and if we are going to govern the country in that way. Well, you have to brace yourself for the country gentry and the prosperous lawyers taking over all the seats again because they're <laughs> going to have to earn their living outside in some way, which is what I did when I was first elected. There we somewhere. go. Yep, the, the gentleman here. Yes. Uh, quick one. Uh, if the Conservatives were to get a majority, would you worry for the unity of the United Kingdom? Well, depending on what they do. Um, I am worried about the unity of the United Kingdom. And I, I, generally, I genuinely think it is in the interests of the four countries, the four nations, to remain in a United Kingdom. I think if, if, if there would be one thing sillier than putting a new border with barriers down the channel between Dover and, you know, and, and Calais, it would be trying to put in new border arrangements along Hadrian's Wall uh, and recreating the medieval kingdoms and hmm. going back to our past. I cannot think of anything more zany to do in the 21st century. Um, we are creating one of the best opportunities for nationalists that they're ever going to have in Scotland and in Northern Ireland by the nature of the debate we're having. If you believe, which I don't, obviously, I may gather I'm a firm unionist. But if you want to make the case that Scotland's being ignored, that the UK Parliament's useless for Scotland, that we're just, all these English just are not remotely interested in our opinions or our interests, or as we, well, the same thing in Northern Ireland. Well, if you can't make that case now, you're never going to make it, which is why SNP are so desperate desperate to have a referendum as soon as they possibly can because unintentionally the English debate is perfect for maximising their support. They probably still wouldn't win because the Scots are, as the English, have a quite a canny section of their population who also feel that it's a bit unreal and would be disastrous for them. But this is the best chance they're ever going to have. Indeed. Certainly in Ireland, if, if you continue, if you don't negotiate yourself out of this position where you've got totally different arrangements for Northern Ireland, so you permanently got what will ever, if you have a hard Brexit, will rapidly become ever-increasing differences across the Irish Sea. And again, an apparent total disregard for the opinions and of the Irish and the all-Irish economy and so on, you, you are running the risk of right. driving the Irish. The only thing that will Could save Ireland fit in one more, Ken. is you have to have a vote in air as well. And I don't think the Republic will want the Northern Irish right. to come in, but the Northern Irish will vote. So it goes out. Number Mr. three, Clark. I think this is probably going to have to be the last question. Well, yes. Mr Clark, um, 
You've always been a bit of a hero for me, mainly because (laughs) you have been pragmatic and you have always judged the world with common sense, particularly in the time that you've been a backbencher. (laughs) Now that you've gone, who do you think will be able to take over that most important role in the House? No, I laugh at your slightest barred comment. You were, <laughs> obviously, obviously, when I was a minister, it you wasn't quite the same. Yeah, absolutely. Is what you're saying. <laughs> drove, drove me out of the war when you were health secretary and all that. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, are you trying to get me into personalities again? What, going back to what I said a moment ago, well, I'm basically optimistic. I, I think the real world will make whatever government selected come to some sensible conclusions over Europe. We cannot go completely mad. We are a, a, a modern developed country. And, and there are plenty of Brexiteers who don't want a hard Brexit. Michael Gove, like me, has voted for every deal that's been presented to Parliament. And he's a, I don't doubt his, Michael is a passionately sincere anti-European Union politician. But he's not in favour of having no agreements and tearing up all our arrangements. He quite obviously is not. I mean, you're not allowed to go back there, Cam. We've got a couple of minutes left. Going back, linking to my last question, the the, the, the quality of people we're attracting into Parliament remains astonishingly high, despite all the difficulties, all the insults. Some very good people have been put off after a Parliament or two and are stepping down. Some of the less well-known ones are disillusioned people on both sides who've had enough of it, but we're still bringing in good people. To single out one person or one or two people, there are some very good people on both sides, really. So it'd be invidious to start... And uh, Tom Tugendhat, Victoria Atkins, Victoria Prentice, probably not heard of any of them. I could give you a similar list of names from the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, I think. It's, we've not run out. Although I say, what we haven't found is the leading figure who's quite got mastered yet the style, the presentation, which has got to change. It's, traditional politics doesn't quite work. We, we're waiting for the man or woman who has the mastery of today's media, the social media, which is nothing, I don't know anything about it at all. It, it, my Twitter site is bogus, but I'm told very good. I, I have no idea who runs it. <laughs> I'm, I've no idea who runs it. <laughs> Whoever he or she is may not probably run this country. And that person will emerge. All right. and, and he won't be trained by a public relations officer that the most successful politician of most of my career in Europe, the one, my, one of my great heroines, he's, it's all over for her now, is Angela Merkel. Hmm. Uh, and Angela Merkel has made more difference than practically any of my contemporaries. She and Nigel Farage, in their different ways, have made the biggest <laughs> impact on politics. And is Angela a product of a public relations school? Did, did she have a makeover? Uh, did she reproduce the Kennedy image type uh, politician? Well, with great respect to Angela, uh, my, uh, the, 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 no, she didn't. She, she's, she's, a, she's a complete one-off in a, because of her very, you know, mumsy, slightly, you know, cautious, straight, and her way of oppressing things. But uh, at her peak, she was tremendous. All right. And a new type of politician has not yet emerged. That's what we need. And I won't put a name on that because I have no idea who it's going to All be. All right, well, let me, let me finish with this question-observation 
both. Um, you or many people believe that you are the best Prime Minister we never had, and you came very, very close a few times, very close, uh, and you've held most of the major offices of state. Had you been Prime Minister, and you must obviously have thought about it a great deal, obviously have thought about it a great deal over the years, how different would this country be today? How, and, and you've only got, Ken, two minutes to answer. Well, you're very kind. Everybody's been very kind. You know, I don't, I'm not have my head turned with all this, this kind of flattery and all that. But it's often been... I've had that said to me before. I always say that it's a great club to belong to, greatest Prime Minister we never had and all that blah blah. Because uh, Roy Jenkins belonged to it, Dennis Healy belonged to it, Geoffrey Howe belonged to it, Michael Heseltine belonged to it. It's a great club, it's the best club to belong to because no one will ever know how bad <laughs> you really <laughs> would have been if you'd ever got there. Quite. I... Uh... I, I, I noticed that he ducked that question as well, but that's all right because he did it so elegantly and so amusingly. Uh, and, and I repeat what I said. He's, uh, he has been a joy. I would say to work with that and work with that. I worked against him. I asked him nasty, horrible questions and all that. But he has been one of those politicians of whom you say, after 33 years doing the Today programs I did, well, when you did Ken Clark, you knew that he would engage with not you, though sometimes he would, but with the audience and he would connect with the audience, and by and large, he would try to tell you the truth, and by and large, you would both <laughs> believe and trust him, and that's quite a lot to say about a single politician.